the people of sake actually brought me into sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just sake as a beverage, but all the culture and history of Welcome, and thank you for once again tuning into a brand new episode of Sake on Air, the world's number one podcast dedicated to expanding the dialogue around Japan's iconic beverages of sake and shochu. My name is Justin Potts, one of your regular co-hosts here on the show, and this week we will be once again revisiting the Sake Future Summit 2020 in the same way that we did back in episode number 56. In that program, we picked apart segments from some of the Fantastic conversations and dialogue that took place during the summit. And in this episode, we're continuing in that fashion, picking out some more great little tidbits、uh, that will offer insight and some interesting ideas to hopefully further expand your view of the world of sake and shochu. If you're curious as to what Sake Future Summit 2020 was all about, I recommend either jumping over to YouTube. And checking out our YouTube channel, where you will find every single one of those segments all compiled into a nice, neat playlist for your consumption. Or over at episode number 56, go ahead and give that a listen, where I spend a bit more time explaining sort of the background of the summit itself and the reason why we're putting parts of this into a podcast format. In the interest of time, we'll go ahead and dive right in. For this first segment, we are going to be starting with a program titled Bringing the UK Sake Market to the Next Level. Here, Mr. Oliver Hilton Johnson, the founder of Tengu Sake, and our special guest back on episode 33, brings together a fantastic panel of specialists based both in the UK as well as one panelist who is representing a very established and historical sake brewery. Together, they discuss what it is that makes the UK market so appealing, while at the same time examining where there's maybe some untapped potential. We join Oliver he is, as he is presenting a bit of data on the UK market in relation to other regions throughout Europe. From there, our guests weigh in on what those numbers mean and what other things we might be able to glean from current trends in the market. So, guys, what I thought we'd do is we'd start off by、uh, looking at some of the figures, which might give us a bit of an understanding of how the UK market runs. And then I'll ask you guys to all、uh, comment on that, on those figures, and what you think about the UK market as it sits now.、It'd、be fascinating to hear from a Japan point of view and also from two industry insiders in the UK. So, what's interesting about the sake? Exports, these are figures,、uh, these are Japan sake exports. It's difficult to track imports, I imagine globally, but、um, I know for the UK because there isn't a unique、uh, commodity code or isn't a unique identifier for sake. So it's lumped into wine. So it's very difficult to track the imports into、uh, the UK. But what we can look at is the exports from Japan. And as you can see here, since 1992, so a fair amount of time. There's actually not been a huge amount of increase in the volumes of sake to the UK. It's been going up and down, up and down, up and down. Since night, it's, it's, you, know, you can arbitrarily just pick a year and compare it to now, it doesn't really help. But since 1992, there's only been a 22% increase. And if you compared it to 2018, for example, it's almost the same. There's really not been much of an increase at all. If you compare it to, to the year 2000, so the past 20 years, It's been about a 40% increase, 
but then since 2010, a 17% increase. So it very much goes up and down. So I'd like us to think about why that is. Let's contrast that though with the uh, rest of Europe. So the big players, again, these are exports from Japan. So at the top, you've got Germany and they've had an 80% increase since the beginning of the decade. The UK, we're next. We've got that 17% increase since the beginning of the decade. Italy, 95% increase since the beginning of the decade. And then France. So those are the big four players. You can see the Netherlands is next, but as I say, these are exports from Japan. So I imagine that's actually because there's a very big port in the Netherlands. And so a lot of that sake is coming in and then being distributed around the rest of Europe rather than staying in the Netherlands. So those are the big guys. Interestingly enough, you've then got contrasted with that, the value of the sake they import. So how much is a liter of sake worth that they're importing? Is it really high value stuff or is it low value stuff? And you can see Norway and Sweden are at the top there. The guys that we were looking at before, Germany being the biggest importer in terms of volume, actually has almost the lowest value per litre. So the, the quality of the stuff they're bringing in is potentially not as great as other markets. UK, we're the third biggest after the two Scandi countries, Norway and Sweden. And then Italy, who was the third biggest in terms of volume, is the lowest in terms of value. And then France is uh, pretty much the same as the UK. It's that blue square. So I think that's a really interesting contrast. And if we get rid of um, the other countries and just focus in on those, we can see UK, France, Spain, Germany, Italy. They're the, they're the countries with the biggest value of sake. And you can see that the UK's value, despite since the, um, there's only been a 17% uh, increase in volume since the beginning of the, uh, since 2009, for uh, for the uh, terms of value, there's been a 76% increase in terms of value, which I think is very, very interesting. So contrasting that um, a volume versus value. Of course, it's difficult to understand these figures without looking at the population. So this is the volume per capita. The UK is the second largest after Germany, but almost the same. And then France is a little bit lower. But what's fascinating to see, and I'm sure you guys will pick up on this later, the volume of sake that, that is being consumed here is, is tiny. In the UK, we're talking a little bit over 50 milliliters per person. It's tiny, tiny, tiny. So I think we'll, we'll find some interesting ground to explore there. And then my final slide before I hand over to you is top European spend per capita. UK's number one, France number two, Germany, Italy. But again, this is only five and a half yen per person. It's not a huge amount of money. So that's a good starting point, I think. And I'd like to turn over to uh, Akiko-san first from Konishi Shuzo. Would you be kind enough, Akiko-san, to give us your, or yeah, the perspective of how the UK market sits from a Japan point of view? What do Japan breweries, Japanese breweries think of the UK market? Okay, so um, I think there are two points. Uh, first um, is uh, when we talk about the UK market, it is 99% focusing on the London market. Mm. In other words, um, British sake market equal the London sake market. So geographically very concentrated. And second, London is the test market for new luxury items. 
Mossbury think London market is the uh, market where you can find good wholesalers and restaurants uh, who will purchase small but steady amount uh, of high-end products. And uh, well, including Konishi, it is very high competitive market for luxury items uh, because many uh, breweries targeting this item with luxury items. Uh, the characteristic of, um, well, London market is, hmm, from my point of view, compared to other European uh, market, uh, there are fewer Japanese restaurants, but average uh, spending per customer is high. So I see um, middle, upper middle to high-end restaurants uh, and I, I see many high-end restaurants and less izakaya, mm. really cheap izakaya type restaurant in London or in the UK. So, That's and, very interesting. And, yeah. and the, the trend is evident from the statistics you show, Oliver Sun. Yeah. Mm. That's very interesting. So the Japanese view is very much that it's a luxury market and very London-centric. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you, uh, Miho and Barry, would you agree with that? Is that our, per our perception of the UK market from being in the UK? Um, for my side, actually, we are going opposite of mm -hmm. how other uh, Japanese breweries are going on. So uh, from the beginning, I wasn't looking at the Japanese community or Japanese distributor or retail shops as I thought the potential is very low. Um, everybody is targeting in a small pond that, you know, uh, that we want to sell to the Japanese market. And then as a small brand, uh, that it's not the brand name is big. I thought I couldn't sell to the London market. So my target was more outside of London. However, it's not only um, Izakaya or a small outlet. Uh, we are also looking at more Western more not Japanese oriented restaurants and retail shop, uh, multiple, you know, wine shops. And the, of course, like uh, every possibility we could think of. So I think the target is a little bit different on my side. Yeah. And in terms of uh, your kind of availability in the UK, I would say that probably Akashi Tai is the easiest to find would you agree uh, the number of uh, like off licenses i wander into and akashi tai is the is the brand that appears and i think that's because the uh, the the method or the route to market that you've chosen by working with a large international distributor allows you to be put in places that people like me um with my models struggle a little bit more would you say that's true uh, yes, yeah. So I explain exactly same as what you are experiencing at the, maybe like a 10 years ago. Mm. We face on us exactly same problem. And then yeah. I thought, how can I be different from others? And then how can I sell a different way? Uh, do I need to go more like uh, how other wines and spirit are sold in the UK? And then we thought, okay, let's do some, something different. And then do, let's do, um, you know, bigger distributor to work with and Excellent. then yeah so you know teaching those people who never deal with sake uh, those people kind of woke up saying okay let's sell sake 
And then they had a really great, good relationship with us. So, you know, of course, thanks to everybody. Until now, uh, we could have uh, more visibility in the UK market. Thank you. Barry, your thoughts on the figures in the UK market in general? Yeah, I think um, I think what's been said is, is absolutely correct. I mean, um, if you look at the way uh, sake has has grown primarily in value as opposed to volume, um, it's quite easy to see why. I mean, there's two things which are driving that. Um, one is the restaurant focus. So uh, the majority of sake in the UK is drunk uh, in what we call the on-trade. So on-premise sales within restaurants or bars. And the second thing is the London focus. Now, mm. when you take those two things combined, what you're actually doing is you've got a really, really small group of people you're actually talking to. You're speaking to sake sommeliers and influencers within the London restaurant market. Now, I can tell you right now, that's probably about 20, 25, maybe 30 people who are <laughs> literally responsible um, for, the, for the distribution of most of the sake that comes into the UK. Um, so if we're looking at how does sake grow, how does sake take more market share, how do we increase the, uh, the consumption per capita? Um, you know, I think there's, there's two things. I mean, uh, well, perhaps three things. Uh, focus on a perhaps the lower, more entry priced end of the, of the sake market. Um, looking outside of the restaurant um, sector. And, and of course, uh, you know, the, the big elephant in the room is, is trying to get the supermarkets on board. Because as you know, Ollie, as a UK uh, consumer, the supermarkets are responsible for such a large chunk of yeah. any alcohol sales, be it wine, be it beer, whiskey, gin, whatever it is. And that has traditionally been an area that sake has found very, very difficult uh, to penetrate. Next, we're going to hop right across the pond over to Spain, where your regular host, Rebecca Wilson Lai, brings in an incredible crew to examine what it's going to take to bring sake to a country that is traditionally an old wine country. Here, she's joined by Pablo Alomar Salvioni, who had a lot of fantastic insight to share with us back on episode 50 for our two-year anniversary call-in special, as well as throughout his interview back on episode 21. Here, he's joined by Ruben Paul Ramon, who is the head sommelier at the internationally renowned restaurant Disfrutar in Barcelona, as well as Francois Cartier, who is a internationally recognized aroma specialist and the master blender for Tanaka 1789. Because blending the best with the best is a secular story. Champagne blending. Everybody know when you think about champagne, you think about blending. When you think about scotch, whiskey from Scotland, from uh, Japan, you think about blending. It's about magni magnifying product. Sherry. It's the same, it's about blending. So port, exactly the same, except of vintage port, but even vintage port, they are blending different plots, different cuvee. So, and all the wine, you know, Vega Sicilia, Mouton, Rachala, the top wine of the world are taking the soul at the moment of blending. This terroir is so important, the grape, the human behind, the climate, all of that we know. 
but the blending is an amazing moment. So, but there was no real story about that. So I've decided to do that. But how can you do very good blending? You need very good sake. So I've, I've decided, with, uh, I offer to the Toiji, Mori Kawasan, a young, amazing Toiji at, uh, at Tanaka. I think we're going to hear a lot from him over the next uh, decade to come. And I said, can we change? different path because I would like to have different sake to be blend, you know? Uh, so he said, yes, no problem. So we changed the rice type, the polish ratio, the koji, a little bit of white koji, shubo making, kobo fermentation, everything. We've been changing everything to, at the end, to produce the, this sake, junmai sake, made from three uh, sake or anise-like taste profile, like Pablo was saying about Sauvignon Blanc from Sancerre Pouilly Fumé, reminding a little bit more acidity, but natural, because this is Encraft Sake Kimoto style, and four other sake that are more like Montraché, Chardonnay, full body, lactone, complex texture, umami, and then we blend that but not equal part. It's, all, it's not mathematical, it's not recipe. It's about nose, about sensi sensibility, about trying to see how it will evolve. And we already, with the first sake we've done, I, I, I'm so proud of the team. We've already been able to win two silver medals uh, two weeks ago. So for me, this was a new complete story about making sake, but I think we create something very interesting. Uh, you know, a kind of, kind of uh, a new way to go to touch, because my goal, I will finish with that. My goal when I start, when I have the idea of blending and trying to magnify the sake was to touch this wine lover. Because I know the wine lover of the world and the wine professionals, so many are looking for new experience. And this is the new experience. Everybody's talking about sake will be the next big thing. It's 10 years I hear that. Ah, sake is the next big thing. It, it didn't happen yet. It will happen. Not because of us, because of everyone. Because of making sake of high quality and that will touch wine lover. Why? Because amazing story, amazing experience. And it's a food lover. Sake, it's a, you, ma, there's nothing like that who can, I will say it's a universal match maker, Sake. So this is need to be known. So that, that's, oh, no. the, that's the project. That, I absolutely that, agree uh, that one of the most important things is for the sake to be of the highest quality. And that's, you, you need to start with, you know, it can't just be sake, sake, sake. The quality of sake no. domestically needs to be consistently of high quality to support the high quality um, environments that sake is going, that we want sake to go in around the world. Now I want yeah. to just sort of navigate to Ruben just for a moment. And because I remember you telling me that you had a unique approach to um, opening people's minds or getting people on the sake bridge. A lot of people you said were reluctant perhaps because of preconceived ideas about sake. Um, you, were, you found a sort of an interesting way to get people interested in sake through a similar, similar product. Yeah, I, I used to pick up a Bodai Moto style that has this bright acidity and texture and it reminds me a medium step between wine and, and sake at least. So it's better recognized for wine consumers. A good sample. I had a table with uh, onologists, uh, sommelier teachers. We made the blind tasting uh, about wines. And they say, okay, uh, let's do 
seven, eight different beverages. I didn't say, I, I said wines. And when I put, I decanted the Bodai Moto and they served it, they were related more to a Palomino wine than in a sake. Why? Because at least, first, they didn't see the bottle. This is an important fact. So they are more open mind and they are not having this values of, oh, Sake, let's uh, find all the defaultiness that we used to like about the sake. So they analyze the product. And as well, to have a product that is pretty closer to the wine makes easier the entrance to the market. As well, there are many different profiles. I used to serve as well, uh, maybe a, a really simple uh, product. Obviously, it's not sake, but you like should makes a click in the final customer and say, wow, maybe I was wrong. This is pretty fresh and pretty easy, it's free. It's true that it's not a, a, a pure sake or maybe the orthodox version, but let's learn more about it. So it's yeah. just like to give the illusion or let's say, start the curiosity of the final guest and they used to learn more about it. Nowadays, we are connected to lots and tons of information about the internet. So it's pretty easy for them to see which is a sake uh, or maybe let's taste this style or let's taste another one. And they are expanding its mind. And obviously they are reaching to different profiles. But it needs yeah. to be organic. I, I would like to say something that uh, the other day I had a, a lunch with friends and I said, okay, I bring sake. The lunch was in a very traditional restaurant uh, and we were eating cocido because this is something that I want also to say that, of course, gastronomic restaurant, uh, Michelin star are top of the notch. But in a way, the next step for the sake revolution in Spain is for everybody. And uh, fortunately, here in Spain, we have uh, amazing products like jamón, ibérico, uh, mojamas, anchovies, whatever, that is not necessarily very expensive. And you can enjoy, and people should understand that sake can go well with everything. So the other day I went to eat cocido uh, in, in a restaurant here in Madrid. I, I brought uh, two bottles of sake and, and my friends, they were like, no, nah, come on, you are joking. You are too much. You're like you are pushing too, too much uh, sake, sake, sake. You know, when we ended up the second bottle, they would say, you don't have any other bottle of sake. And, and I was like, no, you, you didn't want sake, you know, but it's so light and, and I, can, I can drink more and more and more. And cocido is a very like strong thing. And then, of course, we went to wine and it was OK, of course. But the people, the big shock of that day was, wow, sake is not only sushi. And this is something that is very, very important. Also, now with, I, I created a, a club for, for, for members to receive sake every month. Uh, of course, it was a struggle because now the restaurants are facing hard time, so we are not selling as much. But, you know, people, at the end of the day, they, they were like, okay, I want to buy sake, but I don't know what to buy. So you have to facilitate people uh, this kind of, uh, okay, I select for you, I give you a story, I explain everything. But also people tend to be like, no, but I want only one kind of sake. So what I'm doing is like, I'm serving different sakes every month and not necessarily the easy for new uh, consumer, which would be a, a ginjo style, but you put everything 
And you know, the big surprise last uh, this month actually was a sake that I say you can warm it up, and uh, and uh, and people, some of them, they follow that, and and I give the instruction on how to do, it, and they say, Pablo, that's amazing. I thought it was a horrible uh, experience to have warm sake, and instead I tried this sake cold and this sake warm, and it's completely different. And I think we are in the right path. But you know, these things, I think. There's much confusion from Japan, and I think the producers should uh, put things together. And I think this is the the next thing that uh, we need to do to 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 make them understand is that sometimes the actions they do in Spain are not very useful because they they, they promote sake between the Japanese community or Japanese related business. No, yeah. go with wine people. This is very important. Do that. Spend money in marketing. It's not wasting your money like with whatever you do. Uh, do it with the right people in the right country and it will change everything. Now for this next session, we are going to mix it up a little bit. No pun intended. As we examine not sake, but shochu, uh, particularly in relation to mixology and bars for the special session that we called the spirit of shochu in future bars here our in-house shochu pro and regular co-host christopher pellegrini brings together a couple of gentlemen who are leaders not just in the future of shochu and pioneering shochu in bars but in the future of bars and bartending in general joining him is ryan chetna of mr lion fame when his series of bars across London, uh, along with the Mr. Lion brand. And alongside him is Don Lee, based in New York, former partner of the pioneering Existing Conditions, and largely considered an industry mentor by many in the world of cocktails and bartending. And then joining the two of them is also Ms. Chikako Ichihara, who is the CEO of ASICS and the U.S. liaison for the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association in New York and spearheading the push to bring Shochu and Awamori to New York's leading bars and bartenders. Let's actually hear a little bit more about cocktails. I mean, I, that's, I think that's one of the main points of getting this crew together. So uh, what, what's, your, what's your take on Shochu and Awamori in the cocktail space? I think um, to take kind of a, a step behind the curtain, a thing you have to realize is that most people, they don't go to a place and say, give me the thing that I've never heard of, you know, that I know nothing about. Most people go to a place and they say, okay, I, I want something familiar. I'm going to a place, you know, I might want to try something new and inventive, but only because I trust this chef, this restaurant, this bartender, right? But it always starts from something that is more familiar. And, you know, in the bar business, you know, 90%, 95%, 99% <clears throat> of your sales comes from cocktails that are on the menu. Every now and then a regular will come in and say, make me something new. But most people will say, give me this classic cocktail I already know and I've heard of and I've been drinking forever. Or I'm willing to try the cocktails you've put on your menu because I trust that you make, you know, delicious things at this place. And so if you want to get people to try something, just putting it on the back bar and having it available isn't enough. You need to put it, you know, literally in front of them in the form of a cocktail so that they'll try it. And then, you know, not everybody, but a, somebody who will try that 
will then say, okay, why does this taste this way? Why is this different from the other cocktails? What are the, you know, I, I know what lemon juice and lime juice and sugar already are, but there's this word that I don't know on this menu. What is this? Can I try this by itself? Please tell me more. And that's kind of the entry point. So in a way, cocktails is the way to incept shochu into the minds of people without them really knowing it. <laughs> I like it. I mean, unsurprisingly, I, I, I echo Don's t sentiments with that. And I think it's, you know, going back to what we're trying to create and, and help connect people with, with these amazing products and these, this history and these traditions and these stories is to try and find ways of, of exactly that, highlighting the characteristics that are hard of these particular spirits. And, you know, being able to, you know, if you make a, a, a classic whiskey cocktail with something that's, that's petered or something that's got a different mash bill, you start to notice the difference in it. it, it you can exacerbate or, or, or play to or, or whatever you want to do to, to, to kind of highlight those, those elements of it and those, those idiosyncrasies. And it's very much the same with this. We're trying to help people understand the breadth of the category. So different cocktails allow us to bring certain parts to the fore or, or really kind of use the texture of certain ones or the, or the depth of the umami in a certain one. Um, and so I think with the cocktails, you know, with the approach to show to it, it is, it's very much about trying to help people understand it um, and using what is familiar as a way of, of, of kind of stoking their intrigue rather than having to ram it down their throat um, mm. or just have something weird in the background that they're, as, as Don talked about, they're not just going to call for. Um, but I think there is a, there is something really interesting in it because of course you can apply it to the traditional cocktails that we, we know. And, and it works great for that. You know, obviously it's, it, it's a, it's a lighter white spirit. It doesn't stack up if you've got a drink that's going to get come totally buried in other bigger flavors. Sure. Um, but you can, you know, we also have a unique profile to these. It's a slightly different ABV. So you, you, you've got to treat it in a different way. Um, but we've also got, you know, I think there's a, there's contrasting elements in, in shochu that's really interesting. You tend to get floral alongside something kind of deep. You get umami alongside something that's, you know, got a kind of like very kind of fruit forward profile. Hmm. Um, and so you, you, you're trying to find ways of, for, for us as well as, as, as creators, um, use those, those formulae as a way of connecting for our guest, but also rework how we kind of create the cocktails to treat the show true appropriately. But that's a, your point about ABV. I, I think that's something that's probably on a lot of people's mind. Uh, even at its highest, strongest proof, Honkak Shochu, uh, authentic Shochu and Awamori can't be bottled above 44%. Um, it's just, it's tax law. And in fact, a lot of product, most product is bottled between 20 and 30. Mm -hmm. Is that an asset? Is that a liability? Is it a challenge? What, what's your take on that? I mean, I, I think it's, um, it, it's a challenge, but that's a positive thing. I think challenges are good things. But it's, um, again, I think it goes back to your point, uh, well, what we discussed earlier about, you know, just needing to focus in on it specifically. You know, if you make a um, daiquiri, you know, being able to have that little bit, anything above 40%, 80 proof, it gives you room to open out the spirit. Whereas if you start with something lower, it's you, you're, everything starts to kind of already be opened out. And so it's, it, it's, it's harder to give that kind of profile that you're looking to create and mm. to make sure that your guest has an appropriate journey to their drink. Whereas if you've got something that's starting at that different point, you just, if you throw it into those drinks, you're, you're going to, 
you potentially lose the concentration of that character that you're trying to present. So it's, it's almost about reworking it. And this is where those lower ABV cocktails can really help. Um, it's not that you need the high proof to be able to make a good cocktail. It's just those are suited to those traditional cocktails that were created on those spirit bases. So starting with something lower and with a different profile, to me, it's about being, you know, there is a delicacy to the textures, the combinations of the aromas. Uh, and so it's, it's about reworking the drinks that we put these spirits into to showcase them in a different way. And, and that leads us down the kind of lower ABV point. That doesn't mean that it won't still have complexity and journey and like an adult profile to the drink. It's just that we have to almost use a different starting point for those cocktails. Yeah. I, I think that the, the problem that, you know, that you, you alluded to, Chris, is that um, if to an inexperienced bartender, someone who really doesn't know anything about, you know, the, what you can do with cocktail and certainly doesn't understand shochu, it's okay, I, I have a recipe that I know works that balances. I have this daiquiri. And so I'm gonna just take out the rum and I'm gonna put shochu in and now I have a shochu daiquiri. And that's the most derivative way you can make a drink. And a lot of people basically work using those formulas. And that does a disservice to the product itself and to, to the guest experience. It's not a good way of using that product. So for somebody who's not gonna do the work to learn about it and to, to refine their craft, it is a problem. But for those of us who are you know, really interested in, uh, in shochu and in, in, you know, the variety of spirits around the world, it's not just a challenge, it is actually a unique opportunity because it's not like you took something that's 40% and then just added water to bring it down to 27. It was distilled to 27 for a reason and distilled in a different way than the way that you would distill, whether it's a vodka or a whiskey, even if it's still coming from a pot still, it was distilled differently at a different temperature, at a different pressure, so that you can get different flavors that you couldn't get, you know, in a column still going to, you know, 99% alcohol and diluting it back down to 40 or, you know, even taking it to like 125 uh, proof and then diluting it back down and putting it in a barrel. This sure. was meant to be this way so that you can get these specific lighter floral characteristics that don't exist anywhere else. Next up for the following segment, we will be heading back over to Europe and to France specifically for a session titled Positioning Sake at the Top with the goal of examining what is it going to take in order to integrate sake into arguably some of the best restaurants and dining establishments in the world. For this session, uh, Sebastian is hosting a session, regular host here, Sebastian Lemoyne, and he is joined by a pair of guests. One who was our main guest back on episode 53 when we were looking at Kudamaster, the sake competition established by our next guest here uh, in France, Mr. Xavier Twizan. And alongside him, he was joined by Mr. Marco Pelletier, who is the proprietor of Vant in Paris, which has been recognized as having not only one of the best wine programs in all of France, but arguably in the entire world. Here, the three discuss what it's going to take to convince chefs and what that balance should look like and needs to look like in the restaurant in order to integrate sake into 
service and into food pairings in ways that will transform opinions and position it at the top. Is it hard to convince the chefs? Because, I mean, you're proposing pairings to your customers. What about your conversations with the chefs? More and more, um, chefs change mind because um, they, they, they want to explore more. For example, I speak with, about my experience with Pierre Gagnier, it's a bit specific chef in, uh, in France because very creative. So when we propose something new to the chef, he loves that. But at the opposition, some chefs don't want to change and, um, and are a bit afraid by Japanese sake. They said, but why do you propose sake uh, with my cuisine? Uh, I don't understand. So we have to explain that to the chef. Uh, I think Japanese sake can make beautiful thing if we have the combination between the sommelier and the chef together. It's very important. Uh, because if you have only the sommelier and the chef is not agree, it's complex. But um, we have to uh, speak about the chef to say, uh, it's a great beverage, the future of your beverage for your uh, cuisine. And Pierre Gagnier uh, tasted some Japanese sake because he has a restaurant in Tokyo also. And sometimes he, he starts to create a dish with the aromatic flavors of Japanese sake in his mind. And he can reproduce that in a, in a plate. So it's beautiful to, to, to work like that. But uh, now the next step after the sommelier is to uh, to speak with the chef because it's not uh, yeah. that's <laughs> yeah that's that that's a whole different uh, things you know this is this is why uh, but this is more specific to our industry but we won't uh, bore the people with that but it's just that we have to bring back restaurants as fifty percent food yeah. and fifty percent service. Mm -hmm. Never forget that. That's for me the, the the whole experience. And we have still in a conservative uh, country like France, we still have uh, too much uh, people that thinks their dish are perfect, and the sommelier have to deal with it. That's it. And this this is most of the. Sorry to be more down to hurt, but uh, this is mostly of the uh, of, of of the of the restaurant, mostly in the high like starred Michelin and things like that and this is where uh, we had that discussion last week with uh, with Xavier and uh, I think that where uh, uh, wine pairing sake pairing experimentation trying new things I think it's really in the bistro bistronomy in the little restaurant that all these young I'm not talking about me but all these young people are created and and I think they are more uh, decomplexed with with all trying new things and this is what makes you vibration because if you do the same thing for many years and to try new things maybe it's not always perfect but trying new new uh, new recipe to try you know talking with a sommelier talking with a great med d'hotel that really knows his product and things like that it's so it, it, it's so it, it feeds yourself even if you're a chef because we all have different experience we don't we all have different approach so you can always learn from other people and here at the restaurant we have a Japanese restaurant uh, a Japanese chef sorry we have a Canadian in the dining room we have a, uh, a woman from Algeria in the dining room and you know this, this, this is how it goes today and we don't have all these very heavy conservative uh, approach and this is where I think more and more uh, of our clientele are really uh, fitting their self with, uh, with these new generations that are arriving. 
Do you want to give us some uh, examples, some of your... Of course. Uh, it, for us, it's time to lunch in France, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm suddenly salivating. <laughs> so, as you said, uh, Marco, you're right, because um, Japanese cuisine is very pure and sophisticated, elegant, pure. Uh, and in France, we like uh, butter. We like something more rich. So that's why we don't have the same level of uh, idea of best sake for cuisine. I understand why Daiginjo is the best pairing for the Japanese people, because in Japan, the food is a total uh, adequation. In France, as you can see, we propose different things. Uh, it's just an example, of course, to make a Japanese sake pairing. With a tartar of uh, langoustine here uh, on your top left, uh, perfect match with uh, Daiginjo style, fresh, pure, with some agrimas, it's perfect to start um, uh, a great dish. As I talked uh, a few minutes ago, the famous cook, um, foie gras. Uh, so we have uh, the possibility to serve warm sake with this kind of uh, texture, very uh, smooth. And uh, when we serve a warm sake at 35 degrees, we have more and more sugar and more and more like glycerol, we can say. And so it's a perfect combination uh, with uh, the foie gras. After, of course, uh, all the sake, Junmai, uh, or uh, low uh, polishing ratio, uh, or high, it depends, but uh, like a 70% ratio, we can use meat, a veal, for example, here, uh, and mushroom. We love the mushroom with the Kimoto style. Uh, because we have the earthy flavors in Kimoto style to make a pairing with the earthy flavors of mushroom. Of course, cheese, it's a, a, a big part of um, our culture in France. And we can say we don't touch to the cheese. It's, of course, wine. But with the cheese, we have different kind of milk. The goat cheese. We can use a fresh Japanese sake Daiginjo style with goat cheese. And with the cold cheese, uh, use maybe more um, like uh, uh, a Yamaha, for example. And uh, Koshu, if we want to, to, to have a story, I have a great memory with, with a guest. I serve a cheese experience in my uh, former restaurant. And I say, blind tasting, as you say, Marco, I served a yellow wine, vin jaune from Jura Chateau Chalon. I serve a Reres, a Montillado, and I serve a Koshu of uh, 1992. And I said to the guest, with your cheese, it was a different kind of cheese. Uh, I say, which wine do you prefer? Which thing do you prefer? It tastes of free glass, so it's very complex. It's uh, beautiful. We have a, an oxidation taste on the free uh, beverages. And I said, please find the beverage who is made without uh, grape. It's impossible. We have a, a glass in this free made with rice. He said it's impossible. So we keep a surprise. And we have a great emotion with uh, the cheeses. And to finish, uh, a koshu uh, or um, yeah, old sake with a Mont Blanc is a very interesting. And also the kijoshu, the sweet sake, 
with uh, Saint Honoré, our famous uh, traditional dessert here in France. Um, so you have here a complete French menu, and we can pair with different kind of sake. So at every moment, French sommelier can can sell a glass, can propose an an upsetting to sell one glass from the starter to the dessert. So it's an important point, I think. And last but not least, we will be examining the all-important sake and food relationship. For this session, we recruited the sake expert at Tipsy, Ms. Sachiko Miyagi, who has brought together a team of chefs, pioneering and very innovative chefs, who also have an incredible passion for sake and shochu. Here, she's joined by David Schlosser, the chef at Shibumi in LA, along with his beverage director, Mr. Christopher Gomez. With them is Ms. Mutsuko Soma, the chef at Kamonegi and owner of Hanyato in Seattle, along with Mr. Nobuo Fukuda, who is the chef at Teeter House in Phoenix, Arizona. This segment is a little discussion between Sachiko and Nobuo-sang over at Teeter House, examining how he's approached the integration of sake into his food experience, how that has evolved with and alongside wine, which was initially a primary offering, and how his relationship with sake has changed over time as he's found some new discoveries. One note about this segment, this is because of the topic being food and sake, uh, for this particular program, all of our guests prepared a lot of really fascinating and beautiful photos of their work and the pairings and the incredible experiences that they offer at their various establishments, which means that the visual element of this particular program is rather exceptional. So I highly recommend checking out the YouTube channel after this for that particular reason. The other reason being that we did have a few audio issues with this one. Uh, we really wanted to integrate the voices of all of our other participants in this session into this audio segment here. However, just sort of the way that it all broke up, it was tough to find a segment that got everybody in where the audio was really consistent. And so as a video experience, the whole thing is an easy watch and the little audio troubles here and there aren't really an issue. However, in audio form, it made it just a little bit difficult, which is why we just focused on this one particular exchange. However, with our other chefs, Chef Soma and Chef Schlosser, and of course, Christopher's insight with regards to the beverages down there at Shibumi, I said, there's lots of great input there. So again, we highly recommend you popping over to the YouTube channel to check out the entire segment there. In the interim, go ahead and enjoy this look at the sake and food relationship. Starting with Nobuo-san, who has Hi. been in the state for 40 years or so, um, works in a very quaint um, place in a way um, of Phoenix, Arizona. We wanna, we wanna hear from you what your take on sake and shochu is. Um, in your kitchen, how you incorporate sake and shochu in your program or how you create dishes? Like, what is sake and shochu to you? Well, um, I started out as a wine pairing for the last probably 20, 25 years. And uh, I happened to 
blow my mind. I didn't think it's sake with, uh, I do a lot of rich style foods, not just the Japanese style. I do uh, all uh, international with uh, uh, wine pairing. That's how I used to. And one time I was gonna bring sake in my uh, tasting menus is probably beginning or end of Kijoshu. Something like that, not through the uh, dining uh, tasting. All so the it was way. a it was a challenge when you started this career. Mm -hmm. It was a challenge to incorporate sake because you were trying to entice people to have Japanese food or Japanese right. style food, right. and you would pair so, it with wine. Yeah, yeah, with wine. So it's just like a little challenge, and I didn't know what to do. And actually, the one day I tasted a um, very different, unique sake, blew my mind. That kind of changed the chef. Mm -hmm. Uh, sake could be pairing with a bunch of different stuff. And mm -hmm. So I'm gonna, sorry, I'm gonna start screen sharing here. Sure. Um, this is Nobuo at Teacher House. It's a really quaint place. It's a remodeled house, right? Well, it's not much remodeled. It's an original house building. Still eight. have, yeah. Yeah, so it's a lot of histories behind. But mm -hmm. Small kitchen, it's a challenge to do this uh, about 35 seating. And I have a counter mm -hmm. for Makase that's mm -hmm. like to do all the time. But uh, yeah, so I had a sake and from Japan. It's uh, told me sour. And I thought sour sake will be that's me, but that's something changing on the Japanese sake. And I was so excited about it to open the bottle. And, and I, I found a photo of it, I think. Tell me if this is the correct yeah, one. Yeah, this is a Alamasa from Amaneko. Is this it? Yes, okay. that's it. And me and my wife, my wife's American. So she'll get with it. I told us, whoa, this is way too sour. Sake, sake mm. should be sour. And I drank about a half and kept it in the refrigerator. Revisit on next day to see any change or not. Actually, sake didn't change. My brain changed. I got reset of, huh, I said, it's just like wine. Then I started thinking, sake is changing with the pairing what I thought about. It's gonna be so many out there. So I start to study and look for more what's out there. Mm -hmm. and I do a lot of sake only pairing too. It's, it's so unique uh, beverage I should have knew long time ago. Mm-hmm. And this is, you had the sake in Japan because it's, this is not available in, in America at the moment, right. correct? Right. Well, they bring, yeah, some souvenirs I get there from friends. Mm -hmm. So thinking about like the acid, salt, fat relationship, um, to my that food helps. Mm -hmm. Yes, because I have about eight different also tasting menu and a lot of women's are rich body stuff compared to I'm not doing too much Japanese Japanese uh, uh, dishes. So, uh, for example, this sour sake is it, contrast well with some rich food, mm -hmm. and some sweet sake I used to don't like sweet. I like dry, dry. That's like wine too. But uh, then again, if you have something sour, would we'll make like a lime juice and I use fish sauce to make a ceviche. Think about that your tongue is shrink because so sour. Then sip a little bit of a sweet sake, your tongue is gonna be changed back to uh, comfortable zone. Right away, people mm -hmm. think, oh, that's awesome beer. 
it's almost kind of like a, a no-brainer, but uh, it's interesting to wow to the guest with pair with beverage, with food, not just only food. So that's pretty much what I'm doing. What you're talking about, is it kind of like um, what Chiba Marie-san talks about in food pairing, where it's like a puzzle piece. There's a, there's a piece that's missing and then there's a piece that, that sake has. And when it, when, you're ha when it combines in your mouth, which is how Japanese people um, enjoy food, it like completes the dish kind of thing. Yes, I think uh, uh, that's why I was not too much in sake in the beginning because the wine, I, wine has a long, long tail, like 40, 50 seconds. Then if you get something fishy, that goes well, you have not good moment for a little longer. And mm -hmm. I was understanding sake would be short tail, so it's kind of after fishiness, but actually sake does have some long tail too. So mm -hmm. to do with uh, uh, what you tasted and what you drink was sip sake to be stay happy in your mouth for long much as possible. That's the, my goal. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's compliment, but sometimes it will be contrast. So that's what I like to do a uh, course meal to be up and down on the flavor of each beverage and also each food. So another one is have the uh, hinoki uh, little shurere. That makes, you know, a lot of food has a lot of smell. Sake and wine mm -hmm. has a lot of smell. So smell and smell will be not a fun to have a contrast too. So like what you're saying, it's all puzzle to me. So very excited about what's going on on the sake. What was the mm -hmm. Yes, and what Nobuo-san's talking about is this photo on the right. Um, it has some ogakuzu, which is some shavings of the cypress, Japanese cypress, or what people commonly refer to as um, Japanese cedar. And he soaked it in water to really bring out the aroma. And it set the stage for this hinoki, which is like mm -hmm. the Japanese um, ono or a show, a tr very traditional show. And this was a coursed meal um, that was orchestrated this way, paired with all these amazing sake. And right in the middle, you see the Arizona sake, um, which is the, which was the number one sake in 2018. That was the first year that they had incorporated the American um, sake in a Japanese competition. Um, they got first prize and it's like a very inaka, very out in the boonies in Holbrook, Arizona. He's been collaborating and this sake kasu um, uses their sake kasu, correct? Yes, that's, so that was, yeah. Um, uh, but not to take on too much time, um, there was a dish that you mentioned or sent a photo to me of this yoga guinea fowl yeah. um, and some pairing um, journey that you made. Can you give us an insight into how this, like, this pairing came about? This is the sake that you're drinking too, correct? Right, yes. I have a relationship with a bunch of different uh, vendors and Lalabom local, not everything. So one of the guys mm -hmm. who makes chicken and eggs, he bring over one day guinea fowl. And I never, you know, Japan, I think Holo Holo Cho, uh, I never used that before. And that gave me idea to see what I'm gonna do. And I end up doing this, but uh, 
18 different kind of spice brine and graze and uh, kind of like a Peking duck style almost, but uh, presentations and anything that I like, the guest will be little supplies, you know, wow. And usually this kind of big spice, I like to pair with the elastic uh, tea flavor, spicy Pinot Noir, uh, Burgundy, but uh, uh, now Sakurai-san, Arizona Sake makes this Navajo blue tea has a hint of a uh, uh, little medicine on the aftertaste and a little sweet in front and uh, goes well to bunch different spice to cut down, I think. So that's what the uh, pairing is out. And that will do it this week for our session of Sake on Air. If you have any questions, thoughts, feelings, go ahead and send us a message at questions at sakeonair.com or you can follow us at at sakeonair on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Particularly in relation to this episode, we highly recommend you check out our YouTube channel and subscribe there for, as I mentioned, every single one of the segments from Sake Future Summit 2020. Remember that that special program also included about 15 sessions that were conducted in Japanese that have been subtitled as well, which means that they're obviously not ideal for an audio format, but as far as a video presentation, they're exceptional and something that we feel like we're really in a unique position to offer here at Sake On Air. Sake On Air is made possible with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association, and this show, along with Sake Future Summit 2020, were conducted at the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center located smack in the heart of Tokyo. The show is a co-production between Export Japan and Potsuke Productions with all audio work by Mr. Frank Walter. Thanks so much for tuning in with us this week, and we will be back with more Sake on Air before you know it. So until then, kanpai!